Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome back to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I am Joe Priest. I'm here, as always, with Ellie Mistoff, also from Above the Law. How are you? What a goddamn week. It's been a pretty busy week if you're a legal person, yeah. Which, theoretically, you are if you're listening to this, or you've really found the world's worst baseball podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been um, kind of crazy and exciting. And as I was just saying, uh, helpfully, New York State has decided that this is also the week that schools start. So I've had to be to welcome back events for both my three-year-old who is starting school for the first time and my soon-to-be six-year-old who is starting kindergarten during the confirmation hearings. So that's been fun. Yeah. Because he's not going to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Like the kids aren't going to remember that I was there. It's the kind of thing, and, and, I've, and I've learned this a lot about parenting, it's the kind of thing where like your kids are more likely to remember if you when you weren't there. And, you know, beyond the therapist's couch mm -hmm. in 20 years being like, oh, daddy didn't come to my kindergarten open. Like that could happen. But the fact that I was just, you know, there doing my fatherly duties of listening to like bad choir singing from six year olds like that will not make it to his hippocampus. He'll forget that I was there by the time I get home tonight. Yeah. Somehow you've got in my head. I, I think it was a mis old Mr. Shoke sketch where. Somebody that it was a done like an ad for something. A person's like, I'm, you know, a middle management accountant and my wife also works in this. And I grew up with a comfortable life with two professional parents. And look at where I am. I want more for my kid. So I've hired these people <laughs> to teach me how to neglect and treat them terribly because that's how greatness is formed. Um, it, it's a it's a pretty good one, and that's what I think of when you're like, Oh, I'll just be there and then nothing will matter. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. it. Being a good parent means nothing matters. Yeah. Yeah. In any event. Yeah. Let's not talk about my kids. So I think we should all talk about the most important legal news of the week. Deep which, pen. No, which is, <laughs> um, which is there's a tech merger between. No. Oh, you think there's something else that's probably more important? I thought that the news that there is apparently every day a silent administrative coup going on in America. Yeah. That was, was significant. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bob Woodward, who I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He used to be a journalist or something. Anyway, he wrote this fairly important Reporting. account of what's going on in the White House. Uh, and parts of that, obviously, are dealing with bigger issues than is the purview of our humble legal universe. However, some of it uh, is definitely legal. And we don't have the whole book yet. That comes out next week. And we are not on the list of people that Washington Post reporters who are literal legends in the field deem worthy of getting advanced copies. However, the bits that have been released do include some uh, insight into how John Dowd, the former Trump lawyer, left his employ. Yeah. Dowd's the one who said that Trump couldn't testify yes, um, or he else he would end up in an orange jumpsuit. Yes. Dowd, who is a very experienced criminal defense lawyer, apparently, according to the book, made representations to both Trump and then ultimately to Mueller that we can't have him come in because he will perjure himself. And saying that from the perspective of an advocate for someone, 
You're saying to the person investigating your client, I'm concerned he'll perjure himself. That's not a good look. And apparently that happened. Apparently they ran mock interviews with Trump to show him what a eight hour long deposition would be like. And after 20 minutes, he started lying about things he'd already said and it fell apart according <laughs> to the reporting. And Dowd just said, I, I can't let you do this. And that was kind of how he ultimately left that employee, which was, I guess, not entirely surprising, but it, it, it is indicative of how he's burned through these lawyers uh, and is now left with just Rudy and Jay Sekulow. It also, I think, is indicative of the fact that there are some people that Trump has employed for a period of time that have something close to what I think you and I would call basic integrity, right? Unlike, and I'm sure many of you have followed the New York Times anonymous op-ed. Yeah, what are you talking about? Basic integrity? That person's saving America. Didn't right. you read that? There are people that Trump has employed who are unwilling to sully themselves, essentially, in the service of Trump. And I think from Woodward's reporting, Dowd gets to be on the side of the ledger of people who at least had some shred of dignity, as opposed to a Jay Sekulow or, more importantly, a Rudy Giuliani. I'm going to go ahead and disagree with that and its basic premise. Dowd left because there was nothing to be done. I mean, the words that the Woodward section says is, well, then I can't help you, Mr. President. Like, his concern was never doing the right thing. His concern was, I will lead my client into jail if this path goes. And if he's not willing to listen to that, then I can no longer serve as his lawyer. That's not a moral claim. That's a professional claim. I can't work with somebody who's not going to listen to me. I think that's all that happened there. I think if Trump was willing to say I'm able to stick to a story, I think he'd still be there. So you uh, think Dowd would have suborned perjury if Trump could have had the mental steadfastness to actually perjure himself. I don't necessarily know about suborning perjury because at least the way that this passage reads is that it's not even lies that Dowd is worried about. It's lies completely of Trump's own creation. There's an old Norm Macdonald comedy sketch where he talks about in a stand-up that you ever tell one of those lies and you realize immediately afterwards, what am I doing? Like somebody says, do you see that movie with the horse? And you go, yes. What am I doing here? I had nothing to gain from this lie. I think that's what Dowd's talking about in this passage. He's like, in 20 minutes of questioning, he starts contradicting himself and saying things for no reason that are clearly a lie based on what he's already said. I think that's more what Dowd's concerned with. I mean, it's not like Dowd's a pro bono lawyer for widows and orphans. I mean, he's a criminal defense lawyer. He represents people who commit crimes for a living. Um, he doesn't care about that aspect. He cares about somebody being able to work with him and develop a good defense. And he didn't think that was happening here. And as far as the New York Times person, it's like, oh, they have so much integrity because they drew the line somewhere. That line apparently isn't putting children in jail indefinitely, which we've now heard is the new plan or, you know, the tax cuts or any of these other things. The line is, you know, where they find it to be convenient, which is troubling to me on a lot of levels. A, it's a reason I don't really care about that person's, you know, sudden quasi-conscience, but it's also something that where it's disturbing that there are people who are in control of this government who were not elected in any way. Like, say what you will about Trump's way of getting elected. At least that happened under the screwy system we have. We now are at the mercy, if this is to be believed, of a random conglomeration of people no one ever voted for who are pretty sure they got this worked out. No, That's I'm, terrifying. I, I was not defending <laughs> Anonymous Penn. I was defending John Dowd as having basic professional ethics. 
Can we get definitely to- professional ethics? I'll agree with that. I just don't think it goes to him being like morally affronted by things. Can we get to the actual proven perjury that we learned about this week? So yes. So as you're listening to this, we've come to the we we've gone through most of for our perspective the Kavanaugh hearings. There's still a little bit more as we're recording this. So unless something really crazy happens, that you won't we we've got a pretty good picture. It's always uh, a possibility, <laughs> which is always a possibility the way things are working out. As these hearings went on, and we can talk philosophically about why Ellie and I disagree about whether or not the hearings were valuable, but I feel like to the extent my stance that you go through the process of the hearings, even if you're getting screwed and you just kind of loudly use the hearings to show how you're getting screwed. Um, I feel like what the Democrats have done with slow playing and setting up without documents situations where Kavanaugh makes statements and then they, through this process of getting the documents declassified, tag him with them, has proven somewhat effective. And this Leahy situation, well, Leahy started off by talking about certain instances where Kavanaugh is on emails referring to crimes, basically, that Kavanaugh in 2006, when he was up to join the D.C. Circuit, claimed uh, he knew nothing about. We now have emails suggesting he knew all of this stuff. And then on top of that, we have not just that, but we also have some stuff on William Pryor's nomination where he expressly testified under oath in 2006. He had no idea what that was talking about. And now we have emails saying that he was involved very deeply. Yeah, in this. I think the prior stuff is the biggest thing that we've heard from the hearings. And I will also say that I think the prior stuff is the thing that belatedly, I think, has major point about the utility of having the hearings in the first place. Kavanaugh in 2006 testified in front of Ted Kennedy, who many of you have heard of, that he had no involvement in the confirmation process of William Pryor, who is an arch conservative guy who now sits on the 11th Circuit, is always on the Trump shortlist for Supreme Court vacancies. Um, he's a hard-right conservative. When he was being nominated for the 11th Circuit, Kavanaugh testified in front of Congress. He had no involvement in that hearing. That was a lie. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. That was a complete fabrication by Kavanaugh in Congress in front of Ted Kennedy. What we have found out through the hearings, documents declassified by uh, Patrick Leahy was that Kavanaugh, in fact, did know Bill Pryor, in fact, did recommend Bill Pryor for the nomination, and in fact, was in meetings about Bill Pryor's confirmation process. So his statement to Ted Kennedy is in direct contradiction of documentary evidence that we now have about his involvement in the prior hearings. This is textbook perjury 101 as uh, people have been saying on Twitter this is more than we had on Bill Clinton yeah this is a more explicit instance of lying than the the Clinton one which is ironic given that Kavanaugh is one of the people who was part of Starr's team was very much on record that if anybody even approached what Clinton did it was the worst thing in the world and they should be impeached and thrown into the Iron Maiden apparently his views have evolved yeah so that happened so to me I mean look we can talk about ideology. I don't think anybody listening to this podcast has any illusions about my ideology or yours, Joe. We actually, Joe and I fight more about who's more left than than who's more centrist. not really a fight. I, 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 I win. I am. I and clearly am. Yeah. Um, sure you are. 
so take ideology out of it for a second. Assume you can assume without questioning that I disagree with Brett Kavanaugh on affirmative action, that I disagree with Brett Kavanaugh on women's rights, and I disagree with Brett Kavanaugh on Second Amendment issues. Let's just let's just take that out for a second. I am of the belief, and call me naive here, but I am of the belief that there are people on the other side, conservatives that you can find who believe in all the things that Brett Kavanaugh believes and believe in all the things, you know, disagree with me on all the things that I disagree with Brett Kavanaugh on, who don't lie in front of Congress. I do not believe that the conservative party has fallen so low that they can't find one non-liar to nominate and support for the Supreme Court. I mean, so how are we just... Yeah, yeah, go. So how are we living in a world where the Republican Party... With all the control they need, with with the House and the Senate and the presidency, how is it that they literally cannot figure out how to put forward one conservative who doesn't freaking lie? And how can they not take a stand on lying, on perjury, if for no other reason than to save a smidgen of credit that they are more concerned about the integrity of the institutions that they control as opposed to their personal ideology. Okay, there are two things there that I think are pretty simple. One, why do they pick somebody with this kind of troubling background? Uh, apparently, from what we're noticing, this is why Kavanaugh was not on the original list of approved people for the Supreme Court that the then the campaign, ultimately the administration, had. He was added later than that. This might be a good re uh, reason why that was. And we hear that McConnell argued vociferously against him because he knew that, theoretically, that he knew this was going to become a problem. Uh, that doesn't shock me. Uh, why would they not, you know, try to defend the process, whatever? They just held up a Supreme Court seat for a year. Like, they, <laughs> what, what in the world makes you think that norms matter to them? And that's not necessarily a dig on them. It's almost more of a successfully hacking the system and, you know, more power to them. If, if they want to operate in a world where institutions don't matter, authoritarianism does, where, you know, just having the most votes or having at least enough votes to stop things is all that matters, there's no reason for them to defend any of these things. They should flout them as much as possible. This goes to one of the points that you've been making that I think that I think I do agree with you mm -hmm. on. Um, about the fundamental asymmetric nature of the battle between conservatives yeah. and liberals, um, where liberals fundamentally want these institutions to work yeah. and want these institutions to survive and want these institutions to be respected, these governmental institutions. Yeah. And conservatives, I mean, if they work, great, but if they burnt to the fucking ground, they wouldn't have a problem with that either. Yeah, I mean, it all helps their goals. I mean, to, to get a little specific into it, I, I feel as though if you're on kind of a liberal progressive agenda, you need government institutions to exist in a check sort of situation, because otherwise, take, for example, a massive program like a Social Security, right? You pass a Social Security plan in, you know, during the Depression, whatever you pass this thing in the ebb and flow of elections and whatever, that's that's a program that's not really going to show the true benefits for 20, 30 years. You can't say in three years, the other side's going to take over and make it all disappear. Like you can't live in that sort of world if you believe in these sorts of long range progressive policies, which is why those Democrats, progressive sorts of people need government institutions that tend to temper 
things. Even though they want to be very revolutionary, they need things to temper so that when the inevitable backlash comes, these programs ha still have a chance to live and not be smothered by them. Likewise, the Republicans don't really care. You can pass a liberal agenda for a couple of years, they'll get back in power in a few and tear it down so long as there's no check on anything. Add in the possibility of a filibuster, which allows them to, even as the minority, block large swaths of legislation, and they're golden. They can sit back and like cicadas and only come to power every 10, 12 <laughs> years and be just fine. Liberals and progressives don't have that luxury. And that's kind of the difference. And they have different victory conditions, as I've been calling it, to borrow from the, if you know any hipsters who play those like board games. Yeah. I've never played any Settlers of these. of Catan. Yeah, I've never played these things, but I've watched them and I've thought, I have no idea what you people are doing, but get out of my house. But whatever. <laughs> I've watched these people do this. And yeah, different players. There's no like you get to the end of Candyland. It's more, I know that to win, I got to do this thing, but nobody else knows that this is how I win. And that's kind of what goes on here. The The two sides have different victory conditions, and that leads to problems because Democrats act like everyone has to respect the process. And it's like, well, they don't. Which brings us to impeachment, right? So mm. if Kavanaugh's perjury isn't enough to stop his confirmation, which I believe it should, mm. but I also agree with you, Joe, that why would I believe the Republicans would grow a spine now, grow an ethical spine now? Sure. The next question becomes impeachment. Because again, the man perjured himself in front of Congress in 2006. Um, now, impeachment for a federal judge works exactly like impeachment works for a United States senator, which works exactly like impeachment works for the president of the United States. Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution has the impeachment power laid out. It requires a majority vote in the House to bring the impeachment charges. Then the trial is held in the Senate. You need a supermajority in the Senate. That's two-thirds to convict. In our history, two presidents, who we all know, Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson, have been impeached. One senator has been impeached. And 15 federal judges have been impeached. Only the judges have ever actually been convicted. Eight of the 15 federal judges were convicted and, and thrown out of office. The most recent one in... I don't remember. It, relatively recently. No, uh, the most recent judge... Oh, of be, the Supreme Court? or The most recent judge to be kicked out of office. 1805. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, most recent judge to be removed. I think that's that's actually not that long ago. I think it was a Fifth Circuit guy. I can't remember. But the last the last Supreme Court justice to go through this process was Samuel Chase in the 1800s, and he uh, in 1805, and he was acquitted. Even he was impeached, but like not even enough to remove him. So obviously, this is not a process that is used often or particularly effectively. However, if the Republicans are going to confirm a judge who has perjured himself, one of the things that they will have done is given the Democratic Party grounds to call for the impeachment of Kavanaugh literally every single day of the rest of his natural life. So we could do that. Or, as we pointed out on Above the Law, I guess last week by the time you are reading this, Kavanaugh is a federal official now. He is a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He is subject to all of the same impeachment rules as any federal judge would be while he's on the D.C. circuit. I believe that we should start impeachment proceedings against Kavanaugh now to get him kicked off of the D.C. circuit because of his perjury in front of Congress in 2006. 
Yeah. So the doing it now, obviously, the House uh, is controlled by Republicans, so it would not pass now. But yes, I think that's the sort of thing that would, as a symbolic move, be useful. Introduce those articles based on this, force that news cycle to discuss this. Yeah. For the record, uh, the last federal judge removed by impeachment was 2010. And I said Fifth Circuit, but it was a district judge in the Fifth Circuit. So yeah, yeah G. Thomas Porteous Jr. was removed for receiving gifts from attorneys. Woo. Yeah. I should update my post. Yeah. So that that's, uh, I mean, yeah. I think that that would be a useful endeavor to like create from a public relations perspective. But ultimately, no, this is not the sort of thing that this particular conglomeration of people are going to remove someone from office over. So fast forward 18 months, assuming no death, who's on the Supreme Court? Uh, probably Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, with one possible exception, which is a thing I'd like to talk about, which is Kamala Harris asked some questions about Mark Kazowitz's firm, which were weird. Odd? So... Kamala Harris, spicy. late at night, by D.C.'s terms, it was like 9.30, whatever, um, approaches Kavanaugh and starts asking if he's ever talked about the Mueller investigation with In any- the hearing room, not at, like the hay Yeah, 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 right, like- yeah. <laughs> ever talked about the Mueller investigation with anyone from Mark Kazowitz's firm, which you may remember was he was one of the lawyers who represented Trump early on in the Mueller discussions. And this confused Kavanaugh, who said that he didn't know of that, and there's a lot of people saying that. Well, to be, to be yeah. fair, Kavanaugh tried very hard not to answer the question. Yeah, he's he like, I went, well, where are you going with that? She was, like, she was like, answer the question. Yeah. She was like, well, I, uh, I don't know who you could be talking about. And she, and she was like, I think you know and don't want me to say who we're talking about. Uh, there's a lot of talk like, that's weird. Why wouldn't she have confronted him with this? With specifics, there's a discussion of Mark Kazowitz has now made a statement saying, He's not talked to anyone in my firm about the Mueller investigation, which is weirdly specific for a denial there. My initial take, which I made within seconds of hearing this exchange, which is a little unorthodox. A lot of other people are going off on what what was he talking about the investigation with. My initial take was, I don't think this was about the investigation. I think this was more to, as I put it, nice little nomination you got here. Shame if something would happen to it. Uh, <laughs> this was her saying that she knows that he knows that she knows that Kavanaugh knows somebody at Kazowitz. And the Mueller thing was just kind of like a clever general question to get to the specific point. I think this is about he talks to somebody at Kazowitz for all manner of potentially bad and or tawdry reasons. And I don't know what those are, but they could be anything from you, you know, have bad business deals with somebody or you have some history with a paid off some clerk who did something or whatever it is. There's something that she thinks she has with his relationship with somebody at Mark's firm. Kamala Harris is a former prosecutor. And as most lawyers know, prosecutors do not ask things in open court for no reason. Yeah, she has something. It might not be a great reason. It might not be the, the sinking of the nomination reason. I don't know the reason, but there's a reason. She knows something that she is not telling us. And I think more importantly, she knows something that she was, I think, last night or for her first round of questionings, trying to trap Kavanaugh into a story on with evidence to be coming later. What that is, I have no idea. Yeah, it certainly introduced an interesting angle to this, which is whether or not someone from Kazowitz is going to show up as a surprise witness in a few minutes. But uh, I come back to my thing. Given all the problems Kavanaugh has, and Joe, you're exactly right to point out, and other people pointed out as well, there's a reason why Kavanaugh wasn't on McConnell's list. Mitch McConnell 
much as I hate him, and I hate him, I I hate him. That's the right word. Much as I hate him, Mitch McConnell is not stupid about this. This is the one thing Mitch McConnell knows how to do. He knows how to pack the court. And so when Mitch McConnell is trying to tell these Trumpsters, and we know that this nomination, Kavanaugh, was mainly pushed through by Don McGahn, when he's trying to, who seems to be a bumbling idiot. So when- and he's when, also leaving. That's, a, that's it, another thing. The White House counsel is being forced out of office in a couple of days, and somehow that's not a story we're talking a ton about because of everything else that's <laughs> happened in law. So if I have to choose between who's better at knowing what kind of Republicans can get confirmed as between Don McGahn and Mitch McConnell, I'm going to be forced to agree with Mitch McConnell every day of the week. And Mitch McConnell did not want Kavanaugh to be the nominee. He foresaw problems, perhaps these exact problems, perhaps problems that haven't even come up yet. Yeah. Um, given that, I, I don't understand why the Republicans couldn't just find somebody else. I mean, from... From it's it's all, hubris. From all accounts, he was pushing um, Tapar, who would have had almost no paper trail, yeah. which you know would have been kind of the point. But here we are, and uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, few days. We'll see where things go. Obviously, the McConnell's talking about holding a vote as early as October first, I believe. Yeah. So I mean, that gives us some time to let these things kind of mature. We we are very laser focused on these hearings right now. But ultimately, these have to get processed, go through the floor debate, and then the full Senate. So there's time for momentum to be created. Look, there are two ways to look at, from my perspective, to look at a hearing process like this. One is you're trying to convince somebody of something. In that instance, you're trying to convince Murkowski and Collins that Kavanaugh is anti pro-choice candidate and will therefore be a problem for them electorally. That's one thing you can be doing with a, with this. Another thing that you can be doing with hearings is generating a record that you can utilize for a bunch of other purposes. You can utilize sound clips of you getting him to admit something about labor rights that you can then go to unions for, whatever. There, there are a bunch of ways in which hearings have value, even if they don't necessarily torpedo the candidate and i think they're doing a good job of this but, but i and i think there's a third way and this kind of gets yeah. gets through the heart of our disagreement earlier this week the third thing that you can do with these hearings that you could have done with these hearings was to use them to inspire your base to come out and vote and come out and take the supreme court seriously one thing that is clear about american politics is that the republican base votes on the supreme court and Pretty much as there's a large part of it that are single issue voters on the Supreme Court and the Democratic base does not answer the bell on these issues. We lost the Kavanaugh confirmation or the Gorsuch confirmation, not in 2016. We lost it in 2014 when Democratic voters couldn't get their butts to the polls during those midterms. We have to make it obvious to Democratic base voters that the Supreme Court is something worth fighting for. And to me, one possible way of doing that would have been to make the hearings look like this is something the Democrats were willing to fight for. This is something the Democrats were willing to, to go to the mattresses for. This is something the Democrats were willing to go to jail for. And yeah. we did not see that during these hearings. I mean, no one was going to go to jail. All that would have happened is they would have not shown up and seeded the entire media cycle to, well, then he's the next nominee. Or, I don't know, 
over a hundred people, over a hundred people have managed to get thrown out of these hearings. Yes, because the hearings happened. Your stance was to have the Democratic senators just call them off, which means that you never would have had these people being arrested in the stands. You never would have had people in front of the Capitol talking. There wouldn't have been an event for those protesters to be at. If you wanted that protest to happen, you needed the Democrats to stand up there and do their gamely duty to create the situation, to ask the questions that led to people standing up and protesting. If Republicans, even if they continued with the hearings without Democrats, which they probably wouldn't have even needed to, they would have asked a series of softball questions about whatever. And you wouldn't have had those moments where a question comes about Roe versus Wade and somebody stands up and starts screaming about Roe. That sort of thing is all set up as part of this process. And that's why it was ultimately valuable for that. I just don't see a translation. And as to your point about caring about the court, I wrote a piece on this a couple years ago, but... That's that speaks to one of the kind of left's big misunderstandings of the right. The right doesn't aren't single issue voters about the court. What the right has done is taken single issue voters about something else and informed them that the court, the court is, is how the to get. There. Yes, I'm, I'm, they're, they're not single issue. They don't care about the court. Right. They think guns or abortion right, or whatever is the biggest issue in the universe. And they are told and educated constantly. That's why you have to care about this. Right. That is we, not a thing. That, that, and that's what we don't yes. do. Right. Because that's just not like with the possible exception of choice, the connections aren't made very often. Very rarely does Democratic literature make that moment where it's like, do you believe in affirmative action? Do you believe in voting rights? Well, those things are here. It's always a legislative solution is how it's framed. And that's been the issue. Um, That's been the weakness. Yeah, I just wanted to quibble with the idea, like it's important to make the center Supreme yeah, Court center. I, yeah, no, I, I I agree. I yeah. agree with the with the trail of how Republicans have gotten there. I'm just saying the Democrats haven't, yeah. and I think staging some protests might have might have helped. I think staging some sit-ins might have helped. I think having Dianne Feinstein carried out of the Senate Hall in handcuffs as she screamed about abortion rights might have helped. They wouldn't. Have, that's not how it would have happened. Like that's the thing. They would have either stood up and just left, and then nothing happens or they would have kept interrupting and then yes, the which they did for the first hour and then stopped right well wait and then then it would have just ended the other way with okay well if they're not going to keep order the hearings are just off and then that would have been the end like that's the thing there's no end game to this idea of just leaving that works out well and you're not alone in this like i know amani gandhi's talked about this on on her podcast too that there's this kind of logical leap to if Democrats just didn't participate in it, then that would inspire people. And I'm like, I don't see why that would what that would be based upon. The sort of people who would get inspired by that sort of thing are pretty much already on board. I don't know who these people are who are the middling folks who care but aren't sure whether they're going to come out who the, would say show surrender on this nominee. They're and the we're folks happy. who aren't listening to this podcast and the yeah. folks who aren't didn't watch a minute into the confirmation hearings I mean, and wouldn't watch a minute in the confirmation hearings unless there was blood on the floor. Right. Well, as with all of these things and the good ones get this, no one expects people to watch eight hours of confirmation hearings. This is all about create. It's, it's about building sports center. The game is useless. It's the 30 seconds of highlights it creates. Well, That's all they're there for. I think this was a more interesting disagreement earlier this week. Before I was proven right and all these interesting things happened in the before, hearing. Before Booker and Leahy yeah. and Harris. Yeah. Put together a pretty good highlight reel. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's okay. You can uh, you can go ahead and give me the applause that uh, yeah. that I was deserved the other day. That's fine. All right, cool. 
we should get back to hearing actually, the last <laughs> completely boring uh, set of witnesses actually produce anything. So with that said, uh, thanks for listening. Please be subscribed, give reviews, write reviews, tell people on the street, follow, well, read Above the Law, follow at Joseph Patrice, follow at L-E-N-Y-C on Twitter in both those instances. Listen to the rest of the Legal Talk Network podcasts. And yeah, that's everything we got. So... Until next time, we'll uh, get back to trying to cover this stuff for you. Peace out. Bye. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.